Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Let's see if I can remember how to do this. It's been a while since I got the chance to preach to our church, and uh, over the course of our study leave, it's been really good for me to step away from the church Uh, from some of the regular duties that absorb my mind and keep me very busy and frantic. And as a result, I've been able to observe our church, interact with you guys, and think about it without this oppressive urgency always breathing down my neck. And God has shown me some really good and important things that I think I needed to awaken to and see in myself and in our church. And it's got me excited to return Um, Hopefully, I won't just start on a blitzkrieg of changes or anything. It's not really so much about programming changes, but it's more about the heart of our church and what I love about it, what I want to see change. And so I'm excited. I'm I'm happy to be back. Am I getting feedback because I'm in front of the thing? Am I okay? I feel kind of like I'm the bottom of a swimming pool right now. Well, I want to bring to you a message this morning. Uh, It's called Totally Worth It. I'm not sure what happened to Slide kind of ran off the side there. Sorry about that. Um, It comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. These are two of the shortest parables Jesus ever told. And I want to read them with you, okay? Here's what it says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, And he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think I'm going to move up here so that I can actually see my screen. That would be better. And because I'm small, now you can see me. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question. When's the last time you recall saying of something Man, it was totally worth it. It was totally worth it. That's a phrase that's packed with a lot of meaning, I think. And we don't say it often. If you do, then you're one of those people who doesn't know how to add weight to different things. Because when you say totally worth it, usually you're saying something about value versus cost, aren't you? Think back for a minute. Just think for a second. When's the last time you declared something totally worth it? Maybe just turn to your neighbor and just quickly say what it is. What's that thing that was totally worth it? Do you remember? I hope everybody remembers at least something in the last 10 years that was totally worth it. If not, come in for counseling. I feel bad for you. You, There's got to be at least something in your life in the last decade that was totally worth it. While you're thinking of something or feeling sorry about your life, um, let me share with you something in the last 10 years that for me was totally worth it. It's one of my, my wife Jeannie's lifelong dreams to swim with dolphins. I'm not sure why that's so important for her, but it was really, really important that before she dies, she gets to do this. And everything I heard, the best dolphin swimming experiences were in Hawaii, and we missed that opportunity last time out there. And so I'm like, sorry, honey, we have to wait till like the next chance we get to go to Hawaii. Um, I don't know when that's going to be. 
And so I found out about Discovery Cove. And we've been to Orlando lots of times, but never really thought about going there. So I went online to research tickets, and I found out that on the low season, one ticket costs $300. I, I, I had a much stronger reaction to that price than what you guys had. Um, I almost sinned. I might have, in fact, actually sinned when I saw that price. Because that was for one person, and it wouldn't be fun to let her go in while I waited in the parking lot. I mean, I think it's important we go in together. So I'm like, dang. So I'm looking at it thinking, $600 for one day in a theme park is pretty steep. Yeah, the food was included. That's great. But, man, still, 600 bucks for one day in a theme park is a lot. And that's in Florida. So I've got to fly out there on top of all that and pay for a hotel. So I'm in this kind of room. Some, some really generous friends chipped in and donated 300 bucks for Jeannie's ticket, which really saved us in a bit. But it was still an expensive trip. And I really wrestled with whether we could do this or not. But my wife turns 40 only once. So on 40th birthday, I wanted to do something really special. So we went down to Florida, and we did Discovery Cove. And man, all I can say, okay, I, I know I'm going to sound like an advertisement for Discovery Cove, but seriously, totally worth it. Totally, unreservedly worth it. Every penny I spent found its match in an awesome experience. There was not a single regret about the whole day. If you don't like birds, Jenny Lim, where are you? Please don't go to the aviary. You will die there. The birds just land on you and eat from you. and so it's, it's not good. You won't, you won't like it. If you don't like birds, don't go to the aviary. But we love birds. It was phenomenal. Everything, the food, the instructors, the atmosphere... No crowds, no waiting in lines. It was magical. When's the last time you thought about something? You said, you know what? Yeah, it was really expensive. It cost a lot, but totally worth it. Man, I sure hope you can all say that about that engagement ring you had to buy. I'm saying had to buy because if society didn't demand it, ain't a man alive who would spend that much on a ring. (laughs) But totally Worth it, right? Because with that ring, a cascade of events happened, and there's a lady in your life now. So, I hope you can say, totally worth it. When we say that phrase, totally worth it, what we're really making is a cost-benefit statement. What we're saying, thank you, Steve. What we're saying is that the cost was great, but the benefit I gained was greater still, so that... It was worth everything that I had to pay to get it. And Jesus tells in these two stories really a metaphor for this dynamic of cost-benefit analysis. He's saying that in the journey of coming into the kingdom of heaven, into knowing God and having a relationship with him, there is a tremendous cost involved. But over time, what you will begin to understand deeply is that the benefit, the gain, is so far greater than the cost. So that we ought to be able to say of our Christian journey... Despite everything it has cost me along the way, it has been totally worth it. I want to look through these parables and and point out a few things I think worth observing about the stories that Jesus told. And the first observation is about value. It's about glimpsing the worth of God's kingdom. Glimpsing the worth of God's kingdom. Look what it says in these verses, you'll notice that in one story, a man finds a, a treasure hidden in a field, 
And the other story is a pearl merchant who goes out to the pearl market wholesale shop looking for some merchandise for his pearl store, and he stumbles upon a pearl of unbelievable value. Scholars estimate that Cleopatra had a a, um, pearl worth 25 million denarii, which in today's money is $4 billion. One gem worth $4 billion in today's money. And so it's possible in the old days that a pearl of great price could exceed the value of anybody's imagining. And it's such a pearl that this merchant found, and because he's a pro, he knew what to look for. He couldn't believe no one had seen it yet. And both these men find a treasure right under their noses. They see value where everyone else has missed it. And so what they do is they rush home and they liquidate everything that they have in order to lay hold of this great treasure which they've discovered. In both stories, a common element is that the men in the, in the stories find a great treasure. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, in a manner of speaking, the treasure really found them. I, I've got to imagine, and I don't want to make too much of a simple story, a one-line story Jesus told, But I got to imagine this guy in the story walked past or over that field a hundred times. I don't know what what it was about that day that drew him to think, I should start digging somewhere. There might be something. Maybe he saw the glint of gold. Maybe, I don't know, he fell into a little bit of quicksand and dug at it and there was a treasure chest. But for some reason, that day was different. How many times had he walked over that field or past that field and seen nothing but a field? But that day somehow his eyes were led to discover something in that ordinary field which had escaped his notice every previous day. That buried in what seemed to be an ordinary field was a treasure of inestimable value. So great was the value that I I always thought, why didn't he just dig up the treasure and run home? And I think the implication is because it's more than could be carried. It's It's not just one chest. It's a field laden with treasure. And you've got to understand, in the ancient world, nobody trusted the banks. Anyone who had substantial capital, any real wealth, would bury that stuff in their property. And it's possible that over death or war or whatever, there would be treasures buried in fields that nobody would remember or lay claim to. And it may be just such a treasure that this man found. And how about the pearl merchant? How was it that in a wholesale marketplace where everybody is supposedly a pro looking for merchandise, there could be a pearl of such great value sitting right out in the open for sale, and he's the only one who understands and discerns its true value? A hundred shoppers had walked past it, but somehow he had eyes to see what nobody else could see. You know, the more... um, Observant among you will, may have noticed that right before the call to worship, do you guys know who these guys are? Shout it out. That's U2. We played a U2 song. <gasps> a secular song at church was played. But I love that song. Anybody remember what song it was? Still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's a haunting song. Uh, the tune... Um, the Edge described it as a reggae band playing Eye of the Tiger. So the tune is okay, but the words are haunting because it speaks about the deep soul search that everybody's engaged in. You know, everybody is looking for something. 
you may not be able to name it. If somebody were to ask you, what is it you're looking for? It's like a pregnant woman with a craving. I don't know, but I haven't tasted it yet. I'll know it when I get it. It's this undefined but strong pull. I need something which I don't right now have. And for the husband, it's a journey back and forth to the supermarket. Is it this? No. And what we want to say is, what is it? Just tell me. But the person with the longing can't always name it, can they? They just know that what they long for isn't in their mouth right now. And that's the way it feels to be alive sometimes, is to know that in my heart, there is something that I want. It's always more. I look at everything I do have, and my my conclusion is, still, there is more. This isn't it. It's part of it, but it isn't all of it. And I yearn for something else. That's in every person, I believe, whether you're awake to it or not. And even though you can't name it, I think you know whether or not you found it yet. Because if you found it, you'll know. It's a wonderful moment when the husband brings home pickles and ice cream and the wife says, oh yeah, that's it. That was exactly. And you're like, thank God I can rest now. You have found what you're looking for. I think that's the spiritual journey all of us are on. And I believe that nobody enters the kingdom of heaven until they see something more than just the field. For most of us, this is all we're ever going to see. We'll walk past it every day. The kingdom is right under our noses. It's hidden in plain sight. It's right there. Every Sunday when you come to this building, you will look around and you will notice that there are some people more excited about this than you are. And if you're not in a good place with God, then your conclusion might be, well, they have everything going for them. Their lives don't suck like my life. They're making good money. They have a happy marriage. Their children do well in school. They found someone to marry. They graduated. And we might think maybe the reason they seem all put together and excited about God is because their lives are better than ours. Or maybe because they're faking it. That might be the more cynical theory. Yeah, I've been here, done that. There's nothing that exciting. So when I see these people going, Lord, I love you. And you're like, you're such a faker. I've been here for 20 years, haven't once felt that. But maybe there's another theory. Maybe hidden right under your nose every week in this place, something is going on that you're not part of. You're so close to it, but you don't see anything other than a field. And so everything else out there looks just as good as this because there's fields out there too. My work is a field. My career is a field. My golf game is a field. That yacht I'm planning on building is a field. Everything is of equal weight. And so you come here and all you can see is that. The kingdom of heaven every day surrounds you. It's buried right under your nose in plain sight. But until you have eyes to see it, you will not enter it. You cannot be argued logically into the kingdom. You cannot be guilted into the kingdom. You cannot be enculturated or indoctrinated into the kingdom. It is something we enter when our eyes are open and we see the thing for what it's worth. When we see what is hidden from our eyes until God grants us the gift to see it. And then suddenly you see it. And you say, how is it possible that I've seen this a thousand times, but only today I understand what is right in front of me? That's a story I've heard many, 
many people tell me about the person they eventually married. I used to hang out all the time. It's kind of like, yeah, she's like my sister. Gross. Just thought of being romantic with her because we're just such good friends. But then one day I looked at a little different angle and went, "Uh oh, mm -hmm. what is that? And you're like, I'm having weird feelings about my sister. It's so weird. Because one day your eyes saw what they did not see before. It was always there. And once you see it, this is how every man should feel about his wife. I can't believe she's not taken. What is going on? Are the rest of you stupid or blind? How, how is it possible this girl is still unspoken for? And you jump on it. Not literally. Don't jump right on her. But you know, you're like, how is it possible that I'm the only one who saw her in time to grab hold of her? I can't believe my good fortune. If you don't feel that way, let's meet before you go and ask the question. You know, like, you want to feel that way about the person you spend the rest of your life with is I can't understand how I couldn't, nobody else sees it. A treasure right in front of me, and finally my eyes have seen. You know, I grew up in church. How many of you grew up in church? A lot of us, right? And in some ways that's a blessing, in some ways that's a horrible handicap. Because you think you've been there and you've done that, but you've just sat there and watched that most of the time. It's not like you've really been there. And it creates this illusion that you've participated in something you've only observed. I grew up in church, and I saw the gospel played out thousands of times in front of my face. But it wasn't until August of 1984 that the scales fell out from my eyes, and I finally saw the kingdom of heaven and it overwhelmed me. It's hard for me to cry, but that day I just could not stop crying. I cried so hard and for so long, I think I got two decades worth of crying out of my system in a single session. And I wasn't crying only because I was sad over how many years I'd wasted, but I was over, overwhelmed with what I saw. The possibility of a life where God was in charge of me of what he would bring into my life if I yielded to him, of the things he could do in me and through me if I got out of his way. I saw what was possible with this new life in Christ, and it overwhelmed me. And I can happily say so much of what I saw that day has been realized already. It's been totally worth it. And I'm not saying this to tell you you've got to try to manufacture a vision of the kingdom. It isn't something we can create for ourselves. It is something which is given to us as a gift. And that's why if you're connected to someone you love and you love them dearly, but they are just spiritually dry as a desert, apathetic, they're a flatlining, and you, you're so frustrated because you love this God and you wish the person you love would love this God too. It's the one thing you can't fully share and it's tearing apart the fabric of your connection to each other. And I know the temptation is to keep bringing them to one thing after another. Let me just bring them to this church where the pastor gives a real good sermon. And, then the, and I know you want to bring them to something. But that person you love will never see the beauty of God's kingdom unless God opens their eyes to it. And that's why just marching them in front of one thing after another, hoping something hits pay dirt, isn't the best approach. The best approach is to plead God on your hands and knees, open the eyes of their heart. 
Because it's not a thing you can unsee once you see it. It's there. It is so compelling. If you really see it, your eyes are poisoned for the rest of eternity. You can't see anything else. And if that doesn't describe how you feel about the kingdom, then something is missing in your experience. And there's an invitation extended now to get at what that thing is that's missing. If it's been about duty, identity, religion, then how dry the journey must be for you, even right now. But if you see the worth, the beauty of the kingdom of God, something will compel you forward. No one will need to tell you what to do next. When I met Jeannie, I didn't have to go to one of my older brothers at campus and go, what do I do with this feeling for this girl? I really like her. What should I do? You know. I almost went Kangnam style, I'm sorry. <laughs> what do I do about my feelings for this girl? No one needed to tell me. Because my heart was so compelled, even if I had no idea, I'd have gone forward. I could not stop pursuing her because she had already captured my heart. And that is the order in which the kingdom of heaven is laid hold of. Is you first see his beauty and the worth of this kingdom, and the rest follows. Let me give you a second observation. And that is that these stories speak not only of value of seeing something hidden in plain sight, but then immediately the next thing is a great cost is paid to lay hold of it. It's what I call making the great exchange. It says in the stories that both men went home and they liquidated everything they had in order to lay hold of the treasure they'd found. And the crazy thing about it, and by the way, this makes me think neither guy in the story is married, because I don't think you can go home and just sell everything you got because you found some field if you're married, right? So there's a little more drama to it than that. I think these two single guys ran home, and they sold everything they had because they had finally found something worth more than what they were giving up. Do you know how rare it is in life? To find something so worthwhile that even if you're paying everything else, you think about it, your vinyl record collections, your career, your dreams, your good looks, your reputation, that car you've built slowly in your garage for 15 years with your dad. How do you, there are things in our lives that we're called to give up that don't leave our hands easily and painlessly. Some of the stuff that these guys had to sell in order to get some funds were hard to part with. Short of the glory of what they'd seen, the worth of the treasure they'd just beheld, there's no way they would make any of these sacrifices. I think that's why sometimes the Christian faith feels oppressive to people because it feels as if so much is being asked of us, loosen your grip, let go, and yet we haven't found the thing worthy of that. You know, I think, in part, men <clears throat> have commitment issues. They don't pop the question forever because they have commitment issues. But in part, it's also because they have yet to see in that woman the full beauty she possesses. Because when you see it, you lose the cold feet. You gain that confidence. It's just like what these guys did. In every marriage proposal, is a liquidation of every other future possible proposal. In asking one woman to marry you, you're asking six or three billion other women not to marry you. Please don't marry me. I want just this woman. To, do you see what you're doing? Is you're, you, 
In order to enter these relationships, a totality of surrender is required. The focus of the story is not in the amount these guys paid to lay hold of their treasure. Because the amount is irrelevant. There is no way for what they gained that everything they possessed could possibly scratch at the purchase price that they were getting. It was not a fair trade. It was not an even exchange. It was a totally imbalanced transaction where everything they owned still was a pittance compared to what they were going to gain when they finally owned this treasure. If you have never felt that way about the kingdom of God, then you haven't fully understood or begun the journey. If you've been dragged, kicking and screaming into all the sacrifices and duties and responsibilities, if you feel hemmed in by the expectations of the church, of society, of your family, if that's what dragged you into all this, you will lose your joy in time. It may explain why some of you have already lost that loving feeling. It's because you entered the wrong way. Someone called you to pay a cost before you ever saw the worth and value of this kingdom to which you were being invited. It's like being asked to marry someone you're not sure you love. Come on, it'll be good for you. He makes a lot of money. Just marry him. He's stable. You're like, yeah, but there's so much I've got to give up. There's that really exciting long-haired guy with great pets over there, and he... He looks so wild and unfettered and exciting, but my man is stable. There's so much you have to give up if your heart is not captured by the value, the worth of what you're laying hold of. The cost will crush your spirit. It will take away your joy. You know... I think the point of the cost part of the story is that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to come with empty hands. I feel like the moral of the story is if you try to enter the kingdom holding on to anything, you can't actually lay a hold of this kingdom. It is not because you have something God needs or wants. He's not asking you to give up a purchase price. That isn't the point at all. Because what you're gaining, you can't afford. It really doesn't matter how much you scrape together. It's still, it's like when we're going to buy a new house and my kids go, we'll chip in, Dad. We'll give our offering. We love love the the idea of a new house for my own bedroom. I want to give you $7.60. And you're like, so cute. So pointless, but so cute. What can I buy for $7.60? A couple square yards of carpet. There you go. There's your contribution. We dedicate this the Zoe Lee zone of carpeting. It's a great heart, but the, the amount matters very little because you can't even begin to scratch at the cost. What's in focus is not the amount, but the totality of the surrender. That this is a kingdom you don't enter holding anything else in there because, in part, if you don't have empty hands, you won't be able to catch all that God is trying to give you. There are some things God wants to give that require both hands to catch. And if you're trying to do this while you hold on to your backup thing, it's just not going to work. I think there are a couple things that are especially hard for us to give up. I wonder what's in your hands 
that makes it hard for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think one of the things commonly that people have a hard time giving up is control. The idea that someone else will manage my destiny. And quite related to the idea of control is that we have a hard time giving up authority. See, I want to decide what's right for me and my family. I want to decide what happens to my body. I want to decide where my money goes. I don't like the idea of coming under a kingship authority in which there is no negotiating leverage for me. I'm not comfortable with the idea of a king. In fact, I'm quite uncomfortable with the idea of total authority. Think about it this way. What authority in your life besides God is total as an American? Tell me. Who has total authority, unchecked, unaccountable over you? Who here can say, I like your wife. Give her to me. Who has that power in America? Who has the power to just go, I don't like the way you're looking at me. Off with your head. There's no authority in our American experience that is absolute and total. We are, in the world's picture, we are the kings of negotiation. Everything is negotiable. All authority is subject to one other authority. And for most of us, that authority is us. I listened to a, a message by Tim Keller at Redeemer Church this week on this text. And one thing he said really rocked me. He said, if there's anything like that, where you say, God, I hear what you're saying, but if you try negotiating with God, saying, I accept 90% of your authority, but it's that thing on the other side of that but that is keeping you from entering the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is a state in which God is king over your life. And he will not be king in a negotiating context. God is not interested in adding value to your life. We come to him saying, God, just get me past the MCATs. Just get me a husband. Just give me children. Just get me past this next ordeal. I need you for this. And if you will add value to my life, I will add value to your kingdom. We will exchange something here. And God says, that's not really what I'm inviting you to. I haven't come to add incremental value to your life. I've come to demo the sucker and make you into a new creation. I've come to knock down walls and put up new rooms. I'm not interested, God says, in negotiating small and incremental improvements in your quality of life. But I want you to bring me everything you call your life and see if I can actually do better. This life you've managed to work so hard to make that is so precious and prized. It is the crowning glory of your life. And you say, it doesn't get much better than this. This is what I've managed with all my hard work, all my good decisions, all my sacrifice. This then, God, is my life. And God says, if you can't bring that to me, you won't be able to lay hold of the life I'm trying to give you in its place. That's the thing we misunderstand about the gospel and about the kingdom is it is a complete holistic engagement. Anything less is not the experience at all. We're not even talking about the same faith anymore. If we're talking about a Christianity of gradients and incremental steps, that is not Christianity. Christianity begins 
with a magnificent and total great exchange. How many of you watch Texas Hold'em? I can't believe it's on ESPN. I don't know when card games became a sport, but I think they share one common element with sports, and there's a moment that takes our breath away, that gets everybody almost incontinent with anticipation. What's that moment that everybody waits for? In hockey, what's the moment you're waiting for? A fight. Go, go. Everyone's waiting. You're right. But you know, I think the part that most non-hockey fans wait for is the fighting. Oh, he pulled the jersey. Oh, he's doing this. Soccer, of course. It's kind of like hockey. 90 minutes of running around. Finally, go. What we wait for in Texas Hold'em is all in. That's what really grabs us. Because there's something so gutsy about that moment. A player who has patiently made all the right moves to get right there to the end, and then suddenly he believes with all his heart that he has such a good hand, he stakes everything on this one hand. And the stakes are staggering. If it goes well, the upside is phenomenal. He gets everything from everyone. But the downside is devastating. He can lose everything and be out of the game. I think this is exactly the kind of moment by which a journey into the kingdom of heaven begins. Anything short of that, I'm not sure what we're experiencing or living, but I don't know if Jesus would call it New Testament gospel Christianity. He's saying it begins, it doesn't culminate, it doesn't end with, I'm 90, I've walked with you, lo, these many years, and now, Lord, here is my life. Such as it is. Here's what I got left to scrape some of the dust off. Here, it's finally I worked my... It's not like that. It is not the glorious final thing. It is the opening act. Here's what I thought is my life. Such as it is. It's the best I could do. This is a pretty good life, but here it is. And God says, I can take that, all of it, and I can exchange it for something different. Here's how I like to talk about it with people. I like to talk about it as crushing plan B. I think a lot of us, if we're honest about it, we love God, but we've got a plan B. Just in case all this Jesus stuff don't pan out, at least I could say I, I die and I'm on the other side, I'm like waiting for heaven, and all I see is this giant waiting room with music. And you're like, what is this? You're like, welcome to the afterlife. Just sit forever. And wait for something to happen. And maybe that's what some of us are wondering. What if all of this Jesus stuff is a lie? What if I do all of it and I get to the end and it's a farce? What if it was all like a figment of our imagination? Doesn't that at least sometimes keep you up at night? Am I the only one? We can't talk about what's real in here, huh? You guys don't ever just stay up and I go, my gosh, I've staked everything on this. What if you're playing Texas Hold'em, you're all in, and you go, I've got ace high. I'm not sure if I should have done that. I'm not really sure if I should have done that. It's a good thing I'm not really all in. I got half my pot stashed under the table. You know, that's how we sometimes approach it. Just in case this thing doesn't pan out, I got a plan B, which is, hey, you know, even minus the Jesus stuff, this life was pretty good. We had a nice house. We enjoyed some good times. I had great kids, and... Got married, had a great marriage. Ate some really great steak a couple times. Saw Hawaii. 
Overall, minus the Jesus stuff, it was still a fair life. I could accept that. Is that how we're approaching it? Jesus with the plan B. See, I don't believe that is biblical Christianity. I know that's a radical statement. I know it feels like I'm getting a little worked up, but it's because I think I see something in my own heart and I want to share it with you. I don't believe that real biblical Christianity has room for a plan B. I think it is an all-in proposition that says, look, if Jesus turns out to have been a figment of our imagination, at the end, you are the worst loser in the universe. You have lost everything because there was no backup plan. There was no second thing that would have made this life bearable. It was all Jesus or all for nothing. That is what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's to sell everything you have and exchange it for this greater treasure in faith that what is promised will actually be greater than what I've surrendered. That takes faith. You can't get proof up front. There are no guarantees or signed contracts. There's just the promise of God that if you will come to me and make the great exchange, the life I give you will carry far greater value than the life you surrendered. No plan B's. I want you to pause for a minute and think about whether you are walking around today with a, a tidy little plan B tucked into your pocket. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to look around going, who's got the nicest stuff and who's got the most vacations and all that. That's not the point at all. You can have much and not have a plan B. You can have very little and have only a plan B. It's an issue of your heart and where your hopes are placed. Truth be told, yes, there will be financial implications, but not primarily so. It's more about how you place all your bets, where your hopes lie. And if Jesus turns out to be nothing, what really will you have lost at the end, the way you're living? I say this because I don't want our church to become a pleasant dimension of each of our lives, the place where I have good friends and I just like the teaching and the snacks are wonderful, man. We have an awesome praise team. It's a good part of my life. I really don't want this to change. I like my church. I like it too. I really love it. I love our church, but I want our church to be more than just a pleasant part of our lives. I want our church to be the place where we remember the value of the treasure buried in the field. Where through one another's lives you come and go, that's what I miss. When I was in college, I once saw it. But hanging around you people, I'm finally seeing again what I've forgotten. That the value of the kingdom of God is immeasurable. There is beauty there. And I would much rather have that than what I want to chase every time I'm out there. This needs to be a place where we remind each other of the beauty of the kingdom we've purchased together. Do you understand that? I should be careful when I say we've purchased it. You understand, I hope, what I mean by that in the the context of the story. Let me give you one last thing before I go into tomorrow. Something stuck to my shoe. Marcus, your sticker here. All right. Now they can accuse us of stepping on our interns. 
All right. Here's the last thing, gain. In this great exchange, we must never forget we receive far more than we give up. You know, a startling detail of the story, especially the first story, is that as they're liquidating everything they once held precious, this guy is doing it with great joy. It's just so weird, isn't it? Who goes home and sells everything with great joy? I don't think that's normal. I don't think that would be possible if he started selling stuff a year after he saw the treasure in the field. He might start to wonder, hmm, I wonder if somebody else found it and dug it up. I wonder if I'm just going to end up buying an empty field. I think when time passes, the exchange becomes harder. But I think because he was fresh in his mind, because he had just seen what no human eye can see unassisted, because God had shown him something in his kingdom that captured his imagination, he ran home and the immediacy of his response was what made it possible While he yet saw the value and beauty, he came home and he exchanged everything to lay hold of that greater thing. So many things he gave up were hard to part with, but he did so joyfully because he still could taste it fresh on his tongue, how sweet it would be to lay hold of that treasure. I think that when time passes between our seeing the kingdom and our responding to God, something interesting happens, something sad really, is that our joy starts to fade. You know, I've had lunch meetings with people where in the course of conversation, I could see it. We were, we were wrestling together on the same side on behalf of their spiritual journey. I could see that they were frustrated where they were stuck. They wanted more. They were reaching out. And I was trying my hardest to fight with them to say, let's go. Let me give you a few suggestions, something that could jumpstart the engine. I want to go with you there. And I could see during that lunch that something was just starting to percolate. I wouldn't call it a full-blown revival, but a re- renewal of interest. Something was beginning to finally... It was as if the, the flat line suddenly went, beep, beep. You know, like you get hope. Like in the movie, you go, oh, this is the moment where the hero comes back to life. And I've been there with so many people. And then I see them a week later in the same blank thousand-mile stare in their eyes. And all I can think of is, man, when we're in lunch for a minute at least, for a second... You kind of saw it, didn't you? Yeah, I kind of, you stirred up something of those days when I was an undergrad and I was young and a new Christian. I saw that joy and I wanted, I tasted it. I really did want it then. And then I came home and I didn't do anything. Just sat, sat around waiting for my heart to change. The longer you wait, You know what starts to happen in every relationship? Is you start losing that love and feeling. The joy starts to fade. The transaction is still binding. Here you are, joyless and numb, yet you're still, your butt is warming one of these plastic blue chairs. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and it might surprise us which person I'm speaking to in this room. Some of you might be tempted to rib the person next to you. He's talking to you, honey, wake up. But you might be really surprised who might be hearing this with conviction. Some of you, 
The contract is binding, so here you are. But something has leaked out of you. And today, all you see is the field. You forgot that there's a treasure buried there. Yeah, I know, this field I bought. I don't know what I was thinking. I sold everything to get this field. And now I just got a field. No, don't you remember why you bought the field? Don't you remember what's buried there? I'm so excited by some of the stories I've been hearing lately in our church. A couple in particular of people who finally remembered the treasure buried in that field. It makes my heart leap when I think about how long the journey's been and how fresh and new the remembrance is. And I wonder what's possible now, what God will do in those people's lives. I think the same happens in every other relationship. You know how many couples I've stood at the wedding altar so full of hope? I even told some of these couples, you might not make it. I'm sure, are you sure? And they're like, we are so sure. Just do it. We know we're going we're gonna to make it. We're going to be so good together. We're going to be so happy. How do you go from the optimism and hope of the wedding day to those dark nights of fighting and terror and loneliness? Because the joy fades, doesn't it? And if you don't keep seeing the beauty of the treasure, after a while, all you'll see is the weight of the cost. What was I thinking? I think cost me... But there are some things you buy which you never feel that way because every day, in a new way, you see its value and its worth. There are things in our lives like this, like relationships in our lives, that every day something new happens which makes you remember, oh yeah, that's why. That's why. I dished out everything for this. And because you keep seeing the beauty, you don't get obsessed by the weight of the cost. Because every time you see the beauty, the cost seems to shrivel away to irrelevance. But when you forget, that's all you see is the price tag, and it's too much. And after a while, you'll start wishing you could get your money back. You should have saved the receipt on this one. I wish I could get those 20 years back and just completely go full-blown secular. At least I could have been happy in Vegas. Every time I go to Vegas now, I'm always like, I'm still a Christian, can't go to the strip club with you guys. and I don't want to gamble too much. And You're like the, the wet blanket in Vegas, aren't you? You're the one guy who's always going, I wish I could, but I know I can't. And this thing has ruined everything. I can't be happy in church. I can't be happy in Vegas. What the heck am I? What exactly am I? Here's my invitation to you. Pick one and live. The reason you got hemorrhoids is because you sit on the fence. And I'm telling you, one of those sides of that fence is better than the other. I don't know how else to say it. This isn't an equal, equal thing. One side is way better than the other. And until you ask and beg God to show you the beauty you've forgotten... How will you enter the kingdom? I'm not scolding you. It's not a scolding message at all. I can't, why would I scold anyone for losing sight of something they once felt so strongly? I'm saying, man, if you really want to come home, 
and ask God to call you back. It's a simple thing. You couldn't see the kingdom's beauty the first time by yourself. You won't see it the second time by yourself either. You'll only see it when God opens the eye of your heart. Don't trust your pastor or your smogger leader or anyone else with that heavy response. Don't say, make me care about this again. We can't do it. We'll try, but I don't think we have that kind of power. But you ask God directly, show me what I forgot. Show me what leaked out. He will show you afresh if you ask him. You know, when I forget, when my kids are causing trouble, and, you know, I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes they cause me some irritation. And all I see are children misbehaving, and, you know, I want to sell them on eBay and stuff. Like, sometimes you just get frustrated, right? When you, when you get in that place, you know what's always helped me is sometimes just to look back. Sometimes I've got to go back to the future to secure my real future. Back to the past, I mean, to secure back to the future. I'm talking about a movie. Back to the past to secure my future. See, sometimes when I flip through the albums... And I see that little goofy round-faced baby that filled my heart with hope. And now he's creating terror in my heart as he tries to drive my car. <laughs> I'm like, not to gas the brake, not to gas the brake. And I'm thinking, you know what, but I can't believe this is my little boy. My first one. The kid whose head was so round, we called him Pac-Man. And I had so many dreams for him and... I just have to remember that treasure. Look at your wedding album. Remember that no one could have told you otherwise that day. You felt on top of the world like this is going to work. If it doesn't work, we'll make it work, doggone it. And you remember that day of fighting spirit, of commitment? Oh, sometimes it leaks. But you look back and you ask God, restore what I lost. Help me remember. I think that's why those who are able to journal have such an advantage over those of us who can't. Because I think journals are the photo album of your relationship with God. I wish I was a journaler. Because, man, some golden days come and go and I forget them. They disappear into the ether. I wish I were a journaler, but I'm too darn undisciplined and lazy. I have, don't get me wrong, I have lots of journals. Lots of new pens. Lots of blank notebooks. Lots of desire. No execution. I can't do it. I want to. Someone teach me. For those of you who have, isn't it a joy when you're really in a lull to look back at your journal in the days when God had drawn you close and you remember just by reading the words how your heart felt when you wrote those words. No one put a gun to your head. You wrote those words from within your own soul because God did something that day and you will remember it when you read it. How important it is to remember what we forgot. I think God is calling us to do that. I'll just end this way. You can just turn off that slide now. During my sabbatical, one of the rising convictions God's given me is that I think a lot of people in our church are in that place right now. We're walking forward, putting one foot in front of the other, but we're dangerously close to losing that joy. The who, what, when, where, how, all of that we have pretty well in hand. But the why is being forgotten, isn't it? 
And somewhere deep in your soul, you're crying out, somebody remind me why I care about this. Someone remind me why I fight as I do. Why I do my duty. Why I feel bad when I don't. Why any of it? Someone remind me why. I'm inviting you to ask God to show you. Because I feel powerless to do it myself. I'm asking you to come before God humbly and say, God, I have forgotten something so important. And if I'm describing something you never knew, then here's the invitation. God, would you make sense of what that crazy man just said? What is this great exchange? What is this kingdom so full of worth? I want to see it for the first time. I'm going to ask you to bow with me and pray. You guys forgot what a long sermon felt like. It's good for your muscles. We're working out here, getting some soul exercise. And here's what I'd like us to do right now. I want you to think about why you're here this morning. What, What really made you put your legs into your pants? come to this place today? What makes you do any of it? If you're in a good place with God and you still see the worth and the beauty of his kingdom, would you just pray, God, that's a gift from you. Thank you for that. Please don't ever let me forget. See, we don't have eyes for that just by ourselves. He has to give us those eyes. For our part, we've got to keep looking. We have to pursue the pearl. We do have to try. So just say, God, don't let me stop looking in the places where you dance, where you live, where you play. And if you've forgotten, if that's leaked out of you, or if you don't even know what I'm talking about, if you've never experienced or seen in God's kingdom, in him himself, something of such great beauty, you would actually be willing to trade everything else in. If that's never been your experience, or if you've forgotten that, I only know one person who can bring you there, and that's God himself. And I think it's worth it to pause this morning, wherever you are, and ask him to do that. Could you remind me what leaked along the way? Can you show me what he's describing, which I've never known? Why don't we just do that right now? Let's spend a good five minutes. Let's just really get quiet before God and respond to him. Maybe for some of you, right now in your walk with Christ, there's a lot of perspiration. There's very little inspiration. I don't want to assume that's everybody. I think there are some people who are on fire for Jesus. I don't want to do anything to dampen your heart. But I know that there are some in this room. You're going through the motions, but your heart doesn't feel alive. And I know that you're not okay with that. I know it frustrates you, but it also scares you what it might cost you to really do something about that. I don't think God is calling you today to jump over a fence that's too high for you. I think what you need to pray is not how do I climb this fence, 
But how do I see how badly I want to get to the other side? Ask him to show you what you forgot. Remind you what you once knew was so right, so true, so worth it. next couple minutes, I'm going to invite you to do that. Don't worry about climbing your way back up the fence. Don't do that. Ask him to show you what's on the other side. God, we know that in our church family, there are some stories, some people right now who are going through a genuine revival. They have laid hold of this glorious kingdom of of value and worth. They have seen it. Their hearts have been ruined for anything less. And we just thank you so much for what you're doing in their lives right now. They couldn't have done that without you. You gave them a great gift. And I pray that you will keep that gift growing in their lives. Keep them on track with you, excited about you. Show them new things every day that excite them and show them how great is this life that they've laid hold of. Father, we also know that in our family are some brothers and sisters really struggling with a heart that's numb, confused about why they keep coming and going forward and doing what they do. Because they have either never known or they have forgotten this great beauty in your kingdom. And I pray for those in our church right now who are struggling to reclaim that which they've forgotten. I pray for them in the name of Jesus that you would add to their their desire, their hope, that supernatural power, that palpable, tangible presence of God in their lives. That the longing that has gone frustrated for so long will blossom into something great. That they would not be frustrated any longer, but by the name of Jesus Christ, We pray that those struggling in their faith right now in our church would begin experiencing radical revival, an awakening of their heart for you. We pray, God, that it would be sudden, it would be profound, that you would sweep over them with a freshness and a power that they do not expect. And I pray, God, for those who are really struggling, you will help them this day to do something that would put one foot in front of the other towards you. Give them courage and strength to do something small, to take another step. And I pray that you would faithfully meet them as they go. And God, we pray for our church that this would be a place where through one another's lives and testimony, we remember in a fresh way how beautiful life is with you. How worth it it is to give up everything to lay hold of this kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.